Before we begin, I'd like to read you part of an email I received from a listener named Jake. Me and my dad have listened to this podcast together for a long time. I remember the first time, way back when I was 12 or 13 years old, now 20, grumbling in the car during a long ride because dad said we were going to listen to a new podcast rather than whatever music I was into at the time. From that point on, we were hooked. The drama of Boudicca's last stand, the tragic comedy of Office hopes for his son to succeed his dynasty, the fear conjured by the Northmen in their longships, and eventually, the fall of the Anglo-Saxons in 1066. We shared it all together for almost a decade. I had to say goodbye to my father last night. He had been battling a stubborn brain tumor for more than three years. I'm fortunate that his stubbornness near exceeded that of the disease, and he fought for every inch of ground with incredible bravery and determination. However, although I believe there isn't a man who could have fought it longer, it eventually caught up to him. As he declined towards the end, it left him unable to walk or talk. All he could do was smile, nod, frown, and squeeze hands. Still, though, while he was in the hospice, I would come in and just sit with him, and we would listen to the BHP together. Now, there's more to this email, but as I emailed back and forth with Jake, it became clear how important these moments were for him. But something that I didn't realize when I was 20, and I only learned when I became a father myself, was how special those little father-son moments really are for a dad. It doesn't matter what my son wants to do. It's just the fact that we're sharing something together that matters. Those little things that we share become rituals, and they will be the most cherished part of my whole life. And based on what Jake has told me about his dad, Bernie, I'm confident that it was the same for him as well. And so, while I don't usually do this, I wanted to share a little portion of his email to memorialize their time together, so that when he listens to the show for the first time without his dad, a little part of Bernie's story will be present for Jake, and for all of us. So Jake... It's an honor that we were able to be a part of your time with your father. And thank you for sharing his story with us so that we could know him a little and remember him with you. All right, let's start the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 411. Tell it to St. Peter. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Colin, Dane, and Sibana for signing up already. Things in the North were dire. And this was a problem, because as Orderick tells us, this wasn't just a minor local revolt. This was intended to be something much bigger. When Durham kicked off, and the common folk spontaneously barbecued a whole flock of Normans, the exiled English nobility saw their chance. They rushed south and claimed a leadership role in that rebellion. It even appears that they had a fleet with them, though I'm not entirely sure what the plan was for those ships exactly. They may have been planning to raid the Norman-occupied coastline to sap the Normans of their wealth and power in the region. Alternatively, the plan might have been to use the ships to transport the northern army south. Or, of course, 
It also could have been a response to whatever the Normans might be doing with their ships. I really don't know. But whatever the plan with this fleet was, the English nobility never executed it. Once they took control of this surprisingly successful rebellion, they, um, well, they tried to take York Castle and failed. They completely failed to secure and defend the city of York. They left the job of defending Durham to an elderly corpse. And instead, they appear to have used their time to organize a fancy meeting where they elected the most cowardly man in England as king. And then, when these English nobles inevitably faced off with the Norman army, they took their fleet and legged it all the way back to Scotland, which is exactly the opposite of what you're supposed to do if you're in a rebellion. So basically, they took a successful rebellion and turned it into a failed Zoom meeting, and then they bailed as soon as they were required to do any work. And I would be surprised by this if there was anything surprising about it. But this was honestly pretty on brand for this generation of English nobles. Have you ever had a manager decide they need to be in charge of your project, then start micromanaging it before walking away after they ruin it? Do you remember that murderous feeling you had when it happened? I suspect that was the vibe in Northumbria right about now, at least among the English. And it wouldn't have gotten any better as they watched William, unopposed, construct and garrison a second castle in York, and organize the murder of vast numbers of the locals' friends, neighbors, and family members, and also arrange for the desecration of their venerated York Minster. And given how this all played out, and how quickly their newly proclaimed king had regally run away, you can see why the Normans weren't too concerned with things in Northumbria once they arrived and took measure of this resistance. It was such a minor thing, in fact, that after just eight days, William returned back to Winchester to throw a f***ing Easter party. We aren't told if the conqueror was out there hiding eggs and wearing bunny ears, I mean, presumably he was doing his I'm wearing a crown in public so you bumpkins can all see I'm king that he'd begun doing on major holidays. But however he celebrated Easter, he was doing it in the South because that's how thoroughly dominated York was. I mean, even the man he tasked with subduing York, William Fitzosburn, had taken the time to pop down and join the party, presumably because he was so satisfied with the Norman grip on the city. This Great Northern Rebellion had collapsed completely once the middle, I mean, noble management got involved. It was bad. And I guess the only positive the Northerners could really take from any of this was that Durham remained free, thanks to a little supernatural assist by St. Cuthbert. But when spooky fog is your silver lining, your rebellion isn't going very well. However... If you look a little closer, it wasn't all good news for William either. Reading the documents coming out of that Easter party, you definitely get the sense that William was shook. For example, he gave English lands away to Norman religious houses at breakneck speed. And while that was no doubt intended to demonstrate his wealth and power, that illusion was certainly shattered when an abbot from Rouen voiced a concern that his land grants might end up reversed or rendered invalid in the near future, which was a clear reference to the rebellions that were happening in England. And in response, 
William threatened to stab the abbot through the hand. Now, the scribe of this document claims that the king was just kidding. You know, just classic William. He's always telling silly jokes. And maybe my sense of humor isn't as sharp as William's, but this strikes me much more as the actions of an unstable man who's starting to feel under pressure, rather than a comedian trying to liven up the paperwork party. And there's actually another story about William that almost certainly took place at this same court, which also suggests that the conqueror was getting unstable. You see, it turned out that the new sheriff of York, as well as his men, had been plundering food from old Archbishop Eldred of York. And so Eldred, despite being really up there in age, and despite having only recently witnessed William and his knights desecrate his minster, put on his nicest outfit and headed south to meet with the king and tell him exactly what the sheriff was up to. And Eldred, it seems, was just too f***ing old for this shit, and he was in no mood to be polite. So he just marched right into court and straight up cursed the king. The archbishop accused the king of being an oath-breaker and essentially a rat <laughs> And predictably, the court went completely nuts. Norman courtiers were shouting that the archbishop must be exiled for his insolence. But William, in one of the weirder moments for this guy, threw himself at the archbishop's feet and begged him to tell him why he was being cursed. So Eldred told William about the sheriff's thieving. And in response... William ordered the goods to be returned and begged for the archbishop's forgiveness. But Eldred basically told William to eat an entire bag of holy dicks. The archbishop told William that he didn't need to beg for his forgiveness. The king needed to beg St. Peter's forgiveness. The same St. Peter who used to have a church dedicated to him in York before William desecrated it. And I really hope this story is exactly how the event went down. Because if so, my new patron saint is old-ass Archbishop Eldred. Unfortunately, we can't know for sure if this actually happened the way it was written. What I'm more confident of, though, is that if this event is real, William was likely not half as contrite as he appeared to be. Because nothing in his life would suggest that he'd be upset by what the sheriff was up to nor all that motivated to soothe the feelings of a dusty old English priest. And actually, on top of all this, you have the uncomfortable fact that, within six months of calling William a sh Archbishop Eldred would be dead. And if this was someone else, I'd say, well, old men die of natural causes all the time. But there always seems to be a lot of natural causes going around any time someone gets in William's way or offends him. Either way, though, looking at the tenor of all these records, there's a persistent feeling that William is not only under pressure, but he's starting to crack under it. His actions are taking on a frenetic energy, and they're being paired with what sounds like bizarre emotional outbursts. And this Easter party definitely seems like it was a weird one. And one reason why William was probably on edge other than deciding that he wanted to rule a country that hated him, was the presence of one particular guy at this party. Bishop Arnold of Le Mans. Now, Bishop Arnold was William's ally in Maine. His only ally in Maine. Pretty much everyone else in that county f***ing hated him, and for good reason. 
Maine had been the victim of William's machinations, just like England. In fact, in many ways, Maine had been the beta test for the entire scheme that William was using on England. Also, in some weird ways, the two events were closely connected. Do you remember Walter of Mance? He was one of the potential claimants to the English throne, before William imprisoned him and his wife, and then, whoops, they both died mysteriously of natural causes. Well, before all that happened, Walter had been the Count of Maine, but William felt the job would be much better handled by the Normans, so he imprisoned and probably murdered poor Walter, and then claimed the entire county on the basis of a shady story that didn't make any sense if you looked at it too closely. Sound familiar? Well, after he stole the county, he gave it to his eldest son, Robert. And I'm sure that Robert appreciated the gift. I mean, it was much better than the nickname his father had also given him, Kurthose, or Short Stockings. But for the people of Maine, this wasn't an exciting prezi from a dismissive father. It was something else entirely. And it turns out that imprisoning and murdering a member of the local dynasty, then stealing the entire county, well, that's not an effective way to make friends. And as William began to get more and more bogged down with English affairs, the people of Maine were starting to get a little more optimistic about their future. And it's quite likely they'd been plotting since at least 1068. But by early 1069, with William on the other side of the channel dealing with the rebellion in York, the rebels of Maine saw their chance. And the rebels wanted liberation. They wanted to return to their local dynasty. And in particular, they wanted to be ruled by the scion of their old ruling family, a descendant of Count Herbert. Which means, yeah, Maine and England weren't just subjected to similar schemes. They were also basically responding to it in the same way at almost exactly the same time. And by April, meaning by the time that William was in Winchester celebrating Easter, that rebellion in Maine was in full swing. And if you're William's only noble ally in Maine, how well do you think that's going to go for you? Not great, right? So I'm not at all surprised that Bishop Arnold decided to take a quick Easter trip to see his friend, William, because nobody wants to be beheaded for treason. But his arrival and the story he would have told, well, it would have presented William with a difficult decision. Because which rebellion do you put down first? I mean, on the one hand, Maine was a continental chivalric county. So while the rebellion was gaining ground, it was probably only a matter of time before they started fighting among themselves and spun apart. And those fracture lines were probably already forming within this rebellion. However, if they managed to stay together long enough to fully oust the Normans, then William will have lost an important territorial possession. So should he rush over there to deal with it? Well, maybe not. Because while things in York had gone well, the current state of affairs in England more generally was still fragile. For one, while the English leadership legging it to Scotland meant that they were probably cowards, it also meant that they were still out there, as was a valid, though apparently timid, claimant to the throne. And despite that failure at York, the Northumbrian Rebellion was still attracting a lot of interest from the remnants of the English nobility. For example, Earl Waltheof was a powerful figure in the Midlands, 
governing as Earl over a chunk of Eastern Mercia. But while he was an Earl, he wasn't the kind of Earl he felt he deserved to be. You see, his dad had been Earl Seward of Northumbria, and his mom was the daughter of Earl Eldred of Bamborough. So Waltheof was a northerner through and through. He was so northern, in fact, that he was even handy with a pack of matches. You'll remember him roasting the Normans' chestnuts just after the Battle of Hastings. And so Waltheof figured that he was the best person to govern Northumbria. And yet time and time again, he'd been passed over. Actually, you might recall that much of this mess had begun when Waltheof was passed over in favor of Tostig. But this kind of thing just kept happening to the guy. Damn near anyone who wanted the job ended up getting it. Everyone was given a chance, except for Waltheof. And even when he played the game and he attended court and he tried to make friends with William, even then he was getting passed over. And now they weren't even trying to hide it. And they were giving the earldom to guys who couldn't even point to Northumbria on a map, much less pronounce it. And so in early 1069, something in Waltheof broke and he headed off to join his cousin, Gospatric, and the Northern Rebellion. And yeah, Waltheof and Gospatric were cousins, because everyone in this story was related in some way. But when Waltheof went to join the Rebellion, he didn't go alone. Looking at supporting documents and narrative records from the events that followed, it looks like there were a variety of figures from the East Midlands, and from territories that we would associate with the old Danelaw, who packed up, and headed to join the rebellion that had begun in Durham. One particularly famous member was a man named Seward Barn, who was just a staggeringly wealthy landowner in the Midlands. As far as Thanes went, there were only 20 in all of England who were more wealthy than Seward Barn was during the reign of Edward the Confessor. So basically, unless you were an earl or the king, Seward Barn probably had more cash than you did. And now, he was a rebel. And what made a man like this become a rebel? Well, it looks like he was mad that they were putting up castles in his lands. Because at the end of the day, we're dealing with nobles. And their reasons for rebelling were fundamentally real estate focused. Waltheof wanted a title. Seward was concerned about the governance of his lands. And when you look at what was occurring in the kingdom during the conquest, that can seem incredibly petty. And it is. But that is actually an important part of how this plays out. Because the incentives that animated the nobility were completely different than the incentives and pressures faced by everybody else. You see, this isn't a story of good, righteous commoners and evil, stupid nobles. Life is never that simple. Rather, we're seeing a story of a very stratified society where these two groups are responding to two very different realities. The nobility were largely insulated from the most extreme elements of the Norman colonization. I mean, it was unlikely that a knight would ride in, rape the nobleman's wife, kill her, kill her kids, and burn their house down. Something like that was more of a commoner's experience. Instead, for the nobility, the pain of the conquest often came down to complaints about titles, taxes, and land ownership. And I suspect that's why the commoners were so much more willing to fight to the end, while the English nobility tended to lose their morale in the face of a stiff breeze. Because this goes far beyond mere cowardice. 
and it starts to get into the real nuts and bolts of decision-making. The commoners simply had more on the line than the nobles. And as we've seen time and time again, the nobles often can get away with running away or even surrendering. But the common folk are rarely given that same level of courtesy. But at the same time, the nobles still were attached to that cheddar. So as the costs of this rebellion began to impact their profits, for some of them, that changed the calculation. And so you start to see people like Seward Barn in his deep pockets going into open rebellion. And for William, that was a bad sign. Because in addition to being rich, Seward was also a proper old-school thane. Meaning he wasn't just a landowner. He was a warrior. This guy knew how to fight, and he was good at it. And judging by the documents, there were quite a lot of nobles from all over the old Dane law who were getting the same idea. And that's before you even get into the issue of Harroward. Do you remember him? Well, after Harroward killed those Norman knights, hunted the Norman landowners, and then assassinated Frederick de Warren, which probably shocked the hell out of Freddy, by the way, because William had sent him to assassinate Harroward, well, after all that, you might recall that he left England for a bit. And where did he flee to? You guessed it, Flanders. Because Baldwin V never met an English outcast he didn't want to help. Though Harroward was probably a bit surprised to discover that while he'd been raising hell in England, Baldwin V had died. And now, Flanders was being governed by Baldwin's son, the creatively named Baldwin VI. And Baldwin, the new Baldwin, didn't seem to prioritize creating chaos in England with the same degree of verve that his father had. And I'm not sure if that had any impact on Harroward's recruiting, nor how long he was allowed to stay in Flanders. But regardless, it looks like Harroward didn't stay in Flanders all that long. Our records aren't very good with dates, but by this point in the story, he, like many exiled English nobles, was either getting ready to return to England to make a ruckus, or he was already there, and he was, you know, making a ruckus. And as a strange side note to this whole affair, do you remember Gilbert de Ghent, William's Flemish ally who was in command of the castle of York and got the willies from Northumbrian fog? Well, apparently, he was Harroward's godfather. Because of course he was. These nobles run in incredibly tight circles. But the point of all this is, despite the fact that the nobles had fled York as fast as their ships could carry them, the English nobility remained a wild card for William. Furthermore, there's no indication that the collapse and flight of the leadership of York had slowed down the Silvatici one bit, which means they were probably still out there striking out from the woods and chopping down any Normans they could get their hands on. And then there's the elephant in the room. The big... Danish elephant. It was known by this point that the North was courting the support of King Swain Estherson of Denmark. Orderick claims that the king wanted vengeance for the men lost at Hastings, but I think the more likely motivation here was that he had a more valid claim to England than William did. And while having one kingdom is nice, why not have two? And it does appear that at least a faction of the Northumbrian nobility really wanted Swain as their king. Which means that William had to consider the danger, not just of rebellions kicking off all over the place, 
but also the possibility of a full-scale military invasion led by the guy who fought off King Harold Hadrada. Hey, Bill, have you defeated a sexy Varangian warrior poet king? Because Swain here has. And this looming figure of Swain and the interest that Denmark was taking was significant enough that historian Bates suggests that the actual reason why William and his army appeared in York so quickly and the reason why he took everyone by surprise might be that William was already marching north before the rebellion kicked off because the Normans were trying to head off Swain and then William just accidentally stumbled upon the Durham-York rebellion. Which would mean that if Bates is right, William must have been one of the luckiest men of the 11th century. Which also means that everyone else was really, really unlucky. Either way, though, Denmark was a huge cause of concern for William. And if he returned to the continent to deal with Maine, especially if he did it at the wrong time, he could lose all of England in the process. And I suspect that is why after Bishop Arnold arrives at William's Easter court, the king shipped off his son Robert Curthose right back across the channel. And besides, Maine was his county, so let him handle it. Though at the same time, I'm guessing he sent Matilda back along with him because Bobby Babylegs was only about 16 or 17 years old at this point, which is not exactly a peak diplomacy age. But if that was the plan, sending those two back was too little too late because Maine was already well on its way towards independence. But hey, at least William made sure that his wife and his stout little son were safe from whatever hell was coming his way in England. The next few months were probably pretty tense for Bill. I mean, even people who were good at delegation probably wouldn't feel all that comfortable knowing that there was a rebellion across the channel and they weren't organizing the resistance to it. And then on top of that, he had to be wondering what was going on with the English rebellion. Was it done? Had they gone to ground? Were they planning something new? What was going on? And then, in midsummer, it happened. You see, that threat that was posed by Denmark was probably well known by this point by most of the nobility of England. It wasn't exactly a secret. And how do I know this? Well, the threat was so widely known that William ordered Abbot Athelsiga of Canterbury to go to Denmark and try and convince Swain to not invade. And I just find it very hard to believe that Athelsiga and William were the only people who knew about this. Especially since the people of Northumbria were also reaching out to Swain and asking him to come by for a cup of tea. So I'm confident this was widely known in England, at least among the powerful. And that pressure and the possibility of a Danish intervention could well have been fueling the revolts of England, just like how the English revolts certainly accelerated the growing discontent and eventual rebellion in Maine. But while there had been revolts, so far, we've just been talking about minor English nobles getting involved. I mean, sure, Gospatric and Waltheof were regionally powerful, but they weren't athlings. And while Edgar was an athling, he'd spent a good chunk of his life in exile, and his connection to the throne was attenuated at best. But in midsummer, that all changed. Because several English-born athlings themselves sons of the falling King Harold Godwinson, appeared off the coast of England. And they weren't alone. 
they have brought with them a fleet of 64 ships from Ireland. It was a sizable force that could provide much-needed manpower and support to the English rebels who were currently struggling in their own isolated pockets of resistance. And their lineage and their claim to the throne would provide the rebellion with a degree of dynastic legitimacy that could cause serious problems for the Norman occupation. This was their moment. This could change everything. And this fleet, just off the coast of Devon, made landfall and began to ravage the English towns and villages. Because of course they did. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Reddit. And if you don't know how to find us on Reddit, just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click communities, and then click Reddit. You'll find us right away. Thanks for listening. <laughs>